Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pepis, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Samir Pandya, Associate Professor of Asian American Studies at UC Santa Barbara. Pandya is also a writer of fiction. His first book, The Blind Writer, Stories in a Novella, was long listed for the 2016 Penn Open Book Award. He is also the recipient of a Penn Civitella Fellowship. Pandya's novel, Members Only, was named an NPR Best Books of 2020 and was a finalist for the 90th Annual California Book Award in Fiction. Panya's scholarly essays have been published in the Journal of Asian American Studies, South Asian Popular Culture, and Amerasia. He has also published widely in the popular press with work appearing in The Atlantic, ESPN, Salon, Sports Illustrated, New York Daily News, among others. On November 10th, 2021, Pandya will give a virtual reading as a guest of the University of Oregon's Creative Writing Program. Thanks, Samir, so much for coming on the show. It's great to have you. Hey, Paul, thanks. Thanks so much. I'm looking forward to our chat. So can you share with us the story of your journey to becoming a fiction writer? It's a somewhat unusual trajectory. And then also how you came to write your first novel, Members Only. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I... I studied history as an undergraduate, and after I, I graduated, you know, I had taken, you know, in, in that era, uh, in the early 90s, which is similar to, in some ways, this era, you know, you took these fiction writing workshops where you took, where you learned to write the short story. And um, at that point, I graduated in 1994, so I had, my family had moved here from India in 1980, so 14 years into this particular experiment. I wasn't quite prepared to tell my parents that I wanted to go become a short story writer, which I'm not sure 28 years into the experience, I would say that to them either, right? And so I did, uh, you know, the next kind of more practical thing, which is I got a PhD in literature. And um, I, I finished and I, I went off to my first job uh, in an English department uh, teaching South Asian literature. That is what I was trained to do. and. Somewhere in the middle of it, I think my distinct memory was teaching Heart of Darkness for the 15th time, a novella which I love and I continue to love. And yet I think I had this moment, which was like, you know, when Kurtz has his moment of horror, I just thought I couldn't quite teach this book anymore, right? And so I, I, I kind of made this shift. I had wanted to be a fiction writer uh, and I was nervous about being a fiction writer. I had a really nice tenure track job and which now I think of as a pre-recession, pre-2008 decision. I quit that job, moved cross country with uh, my wife. We just had a baby and we both moved to the West Coast and I, want, I kind of wanted to make myself into a, a writer, right? And uh, for that period after that, for roughly a decade to 12 years after that, um, I taught in uh, where I teach now in an Asian American studies department as a lecturer, right? And um, through that process, in, in an interesting way, I got freed up. And the freeing up meant I started publishing scholarship in the way that I was meant to, which I hadn't really done when I was a faculty member. And then I just started writing fiction, right? Which is what I wanted to do. And in 2015, I published my first book of stories, uh, which gave me, you know, publishing stories, publishing a book of stories, I think, Paul, as you know, is it's just a hard sell, whichever way you do it, right? Like you hear of the great success stories, but there are a lot of us 
who, you know, for, for, the, for whom this road is difficult and complicated. And out of all of it, I, I, I got this kind of nice fellowship um, that took me to Italy for six weeks. And I had meant to write a very different kind of book when I was there. But what I did instead is I just sat down and I thought about my own experience as a lecturer uh, and the particular kind of insecurity that goes into that life, right? And I also recognized the profound privileges I had in having moved, in having left a tenure track job and wanting to make myself into a writer in my 30s, right? And it's this kind of conflict between the kinds of privileges that I have experienced and then the difficulties that I've experienced, I placed into Raj Bhatt, right? And so I was there at this in this fellowship for six weeks and I had this idea that I would set a novel in the span of a week. And so I put up these kind of six blank sheets on a cork board and gave them each the day, right? And I just started writing myself notes. And out of that, I um, kind of, uh, kind of produced the first draft of this novel very, very quickly, right? And I think one of the things I wanna say is that it was written in many ways in the shadow of the 2016 presidential election, right? And even though I don't directly name the period, I have set this novel in the fall, early fall of 2016, right? Where I think some of us collectively thought that things were gonna go a different way. Right. And I think part of what happened in kind of really engaging with this book in 2017 is the one topic that I think I had been a little circumspect about writing about, which was race, I no longer was. Right. And so a collection of these different experiences I just kind of placed in there and I began working on this book. Right. And I think uh, I can kind of talk about the process afterwards, but there is a, a way in which kind of the, the, this book was written in a moment of, in some ways of fatigue. And I think that I've tried to convey that fatigue through the voice of Ron. He has a pretty terrible week, but the terrible week is a kind of a collection, I think in his case of a couple of terrible years or even more than that. Um, so you've already told us that it's uh, the book is uh, about Raj Bhatt and that he's the narrator and that it happens in a week and that it's a terrible week, <laughs> which I would say is an understatement. Um, can you can you just quickly give us a kind of thumbnail, uh, a little bit more of a thumbnail of the setup of the novel, uh, and then I'm going to ask you to read a passage. Yeah. So essentially, the, the, the novel has these two, two different narratives, right? The first narrative takes place at a tennis club, a uh, very particular kind of tennis club, which is not posh, which is not fancy, but which is what I would kind of term California fancy, right? That it prides itself on a certain liberal openness, even as it is a private tennis club, right? So that is the first strand. It is a very undiverse tennis club. Raj Butt is one of the few non-white members of the club and he's on this membership committee and he is kind of excited about the prospect of a non-white family joining the club with him, right? A African-American couple comes in for an interview and Raj is instantly smitten with bo both of them, but particularly the man, Bill Brown. And 
in that kind of moment of smittenness and envy and excitement, Raj makes a mistake, right? And in some ways, the novel kind of tries to work through the shrapnel from the mistake over the next week. The, the second narrative strand is Raj in his day job, which is as a cultural anthropologist, a lecturer, not a tenure track faculty member at this college where he kind of agitated from this evening that he'd had on this membership committee, says something about uh, kind of this idea of he's giving a lecture on Edward Said's Orientalism, I think is a little bit kind of um, jacked up in a certain way and kind of makes this argument about the relationship between Christianity and kind of Orientalism and some students uh, take uh, offense to it. And so in essence, these are the two narrative strands of what happens at the tennis club and what happens on campus. And I kind of go back and forth between them until a certain moment in the text where the, the, the two strands overlap with one another. So thanks so much for that thumbnail. Would you read uh, the very beginning of the novel for us? Yeah. Right, so this is uh, the first chapter is, is called Sunday. We were just starting our third night of interviews and I felt that kind of weariness that comes from having wasted time. Raj, I said, introducing myself to the first couple. The man was wearing a casual half sleeve shirt and his wife was refreshingly unremarkable. In a loose dress, her hair in a simple ponytail. I liked them for it but only for about 10 seconds. Raj, the wife asked, leaning in. It was a question I'd been asked too many times in my life. Raj, I exaggerated. As in Fetter, I feigned a smile, unsure if she was joking. They moved on, introducing themselves to the rest of the membership committee. The committee, Suzanne, the efficient and disciplined chair, Stan, a balding 60-ish lawyer, Richard, a leather-skinned club pro, Leslie, childhood friend of my wife, and I had a particularly difficult task. Over the course of two evenings the previous week, we had already spoken with 10 different couples about why they wanted to join the tennis club. Simple nouns elevated to proper noun status. Tonight, we would talk to still more and then choose five out of the total 15 to let in. The club had opened several decades before in the early 70s when couples were riding high from breaking rules in the 60s and yet wanted to make sure their children knew how to slice a backhand properly. The original membership had been a mixture of old money and lawyers and doctors, all of whom downplayed the breadth of their bank accounts. But the past several years had brought the movie and hedge fund people who'd bought up the old estates and come driving into town in cars that were never more than a year old. As the town's gilding glowed ever brighter, the club, or the TC as it was known amongst members, had continued on, a simple place with eight tennis courts, a swimming pool, and a rustic clubhouse with worn wicker couches. No flat screen TVs, no towel service. There was a soda machine that still charged 50 cents for a Coke. Simplicity was the brand, the simpler it stayed, more people wanted to join, perhaps to rub off some of their new money sheen. The membership committee was tasked with bringing in families that had some sense of that earlier 
understated ethos, as well as some of the newer sort who paid their monthly dues, but generally preferred to use their home swimming pools and tennis courts. My wife, Eva, had grown up coming here, her parents a little ambivalent about its clubbiness and yet appreciative of that self-same simplicity. When we moved to town, we had joined together. The both of us were concerned by how quickly we were losing our urbanity. I, in particular, had fought the idea of the place, though quietly, somewhere inside, I knew I had been drawn to its luster. But for me, tennis courts and swimming pools were meant to be public. I'd honed my tennis skills on muni courts in the East Bay after my family had moved to California from Bombay. I was hazed into playing better by a group of Filipinos who worked the night shift at the post office, slept several hours in the morning, and then set up shop at the courts until they had to go to work again. In high school, I secretly hated the kids on our team who, with their multiple freshly gripped rackets and unscuffed Nikes, went off to private clubs after practice for further instruction. They had at least one parent who came to all their matches, while my parents were always working. I could sense then the deeper differences between us, though I didn't yet have the language to articulate them or the experience with which to understand them. But somehow, now, I'd grown to love belonging to my own club, or at least parts of it. I loved the late afternoon matches when the soft winter California sun lit up the surrounding hills in orange phosphorescence. I loved grilling meat with our friends while the children swam and swooped in for bites of hot dog. I loved diving into the pristine pool, swimming the length in one breath, and appearing at the other end, refreshed and alive. And most of all, I loved being there with Eva and our boys when the place was empty, hitting balls on a court and then jumping into the pool, the four of us a perfectly self-contained pod. In most every way, the club was not so different from the club my family had belonged to before we left Bombay. We joined a gymkhana, one of the many clubs that had originally been made for British colonials, but later, by the time we were members, were populated mostly by Bombay's upper middle class after my father had gotten a big promotion. That was where I'd swum in a pool for the first time. After swimming, I'd lounge in the comfortable, dilapidated clubhouse with a mango lassi and a vegetable Frankie. I'd easily blended into the background at the Gymkhana, not so much at the TC. Thank Thanks you. so much, Samir, for reading that passage. Um, it's a wonderful opening to the book, and we learn immediately, uh, as you've mentioned, I think in passing, that Rajbat is the narrator as well as the protagonist of the of the novel. I'm wondering, why did you decide to go with a first person narrator? Why why was that limited perspective uh, appealing to you? Yeah, you know, I, I think th th there is a, a way in which I mean that two 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 ways I think I can answer that question, right? Which is first, Raj professionally is an anthropologist. He's an ethnographer, right? And in a way he has spent his professional life trying to maintain a certain kind of third person distance from his subjects, right? And for me, this book is an ethnography of the people whom he lives amongst. It is in many ways an ethnography of himself, right? 
And so I think on one hand, what I wanted to do was to take away that distance that he's always been comfortable with, right? Number two, I think there is a way in which kind of, I am asking a lot for my readers to occupy his consciousness for 325 pages, right? And yet what I hope and why I ended up with the first person is I think I wanted to convey the constant conversation that a character like Rajbhat has when he exists in what he thinks of as this middle space, right? Where he is neither black nor white, he's neither rich nor poor, right? And so I think that what the first person does is it gives you an intimate sense of what that experience is like, right? And I think in a way, it also gives you an intimate sense of what being a father in this particular moment looks like, right? So that there are these series of moments where kind of it, 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 it lands a reader closely there, right? And so, and, and because it all happens in a week, um, you know, you don't, I, I wanted to kind of get away from the certain luxury of being able to look at this from a distance, right? I wanted to see what this experience was like for Raj as it was happening, where he does not have a moment to kind of sit back and say, oh, that didn't really go well. So you, you, you said a very interesting thing that it's, that, that it's a kind of eth ethnographic novel. Mm -hmm. And um, let's talk a little bit about this question about genre, yeah. the novelistic genre, because this novel combines and revises several novelistic genres. I wasn't thinking of ethnographic novel, but now that you mention it, tell us a little bit about what, how you see the intervention that the novel makes around this question of novelistic genre. What are the novel novelistic genres that you're evoking and how are you trying to transform or enrich them? Yeah, thank you. So I think, and, and I, I will say this is kind of, I, I'm trained as a literary critic, right? But there was a part of me that had to put away that training when I started writing this book, right? So I think this is an answer I've arrived at in retrospect after this book was done rather than sitting down in saying that the three genres I was most interested in was number one, the immigrant novel, right? And there's a way in which there's an arc to the immigrant novel, which is to go from tradition to modernity, to go from poverty to the American dream. Right, And the section that I read, and part of the reason that last line is there, which is, I was comfortable at the Gymkhana and not so much at the TC, was to suggest that Rajput was well off and his family was well off in India before they arrived in America. Right, And so I think a part of what I wanted to think about is the ways in which we rethink these immigrant lives, right? which is that often, uh, and this is not the case, this is a specific case here, is that the, the act of immigration is an act of class demotion, right? Is a place where the certain kind of caste and racial benefits that he enjoyed growing up are not the same ones he enjoys in this country, right? So kind of tradition number one, well before I, became middle-aged myself, I love novels about men in middle age having a crisis, right? So in some ways, I think I teethed on Cheever, on Updike, on Richard Ford, right? 
the, the, these are kind of, and they're a very specific kind of tradition, right? Like, and I think in, in some ways, even as I was reading this to you just, you know, five minutes ago, I was just thinking about how much kind of Cheever's voice is in my head when I'm writing, right? It's because in some ways, more than any kind of post-war American novelist, Cheever and to a certain extent Roth have been these two interesting, very different guiding lights for me. Right? And so I think I was interested in that kind of crisis and what that crisis looks like. And then the third and kind of the genre that I was primarily interested in was the campus novel, right? And the ways in which the campus novel traditionally has a tenured faculty member, traditionally, right, when you look at the, the, the tradition, you know, going all the way back to like Stoner by John Williams and Kingsley Amos, all of these different examples is traditionally a white man in crisis, right? And so in bringing all three of these together, what I felt like I could do is to help us rethink the immigrant narrative and then to rethink midlife crisis as what happens when race is the midlife crisis, right? What happens when your racial identity becomes the thing that prevents you from kind of passing in the way that you have passed, right? And, um, and then finally, the other thing I wanted to say about the campus novel is, I also wanted to think about the ways in which our campuses have changed, right? They are not the campuses that I went to as an undergrad or as a grad student. And Paul, you've been on a campus for you know, much of your professional life, right? You and I could have an entirely different conversation about the various acts of this really important social space in our collective lives. And so I think that those are these kind of three genres that like when you mash them up, what's fun is they, they tend to critique each other, right? By their very presence, which is like, oh, this is the way kind of, you know, Straight Man is another great book that I love by Richard Russo, right? And I was thinking like, what, what would it look like if this was Brown Straight Man as opposed to just Straight Man, you know? And so I think those are the three that I was particularly interested in. It's just fascinating, so interesting. I, you know, I, I was going to ask you because there are some campus novels which you know that are satirical. Yeah, and I kept asking myself, is this book a satirical novel? And sometimes I thought there were moments that were satirical in your in your novel, but there are other times when the novel is so um, realistic. It, it's it's there's no exaggeration whatsoever in certain ways, and it's so humane in that sense. But what you've just said about this mashup, that, that's fascinating to me, because in a way, this mashup of genre, as you just described it, really does allow you to get at that critical perspective that satire gives with much less of that cold, harsh, exaggerated quality that satire often has, which is one of the reasons why this book is a moving book, um, because you're not distanced. Uh, obviously, the use of the first person, too, does that. But another crucial part of what you said is is this um, that that it's about a, a brown a brown protagonist, mm -hmm. and the novel was published in July of 2020. So this is right in the middle of the ongoing racial reckoning in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement. And you know the book is it's really and you you've said this in a couple of moments, which it's really a book about race about race in America, but it's its take on race in America is an unusual take. Would you talk to us a little bit about how you understand the way this book 
handles the problem of race in America? You know, th there is a way, rightfully so, we have had a consistent conversation about race as one that is decided between black and white, right? That that is for every clear reason possible, right? Like there is no reason it should not have been, that, that, that should not be the conversation, right? And I think George Floyd in 2020 really underscored that, right? Which is to, to, to go from, and, and this is when I was saying that this is set in 2016, right? Which is kind of how quickly we go from a certain kind of Obama era optimism to a complete shift in the ways in which, like how quickly the word post-racial became a, a useless term, right? And so on one hand, I think that that is a significant piece of this, right? But there is a way in which these other racialized stories, right? And in my case, in talking about being Indian in America, about this notion of brownness is what it does is not only does it suggest that there are multiple racial histories in this country, but I think that what I was trying to really get at is the ways in which race operates in all sorts of different shifting ways constantly, right? So that there is like, why look at the case of Rajput is because there's a way in which Rajput passes until he doesn't, right? That he can exist in these spaces until he makes a mistake that is deemed kind of unforgivable and he is asked to leave in a certain way. And so I think part of what I was kind of trying to get at is on one level, just explore what brownness means, right? And this is the thing about if I, when I say brown, to be brown in Indian American and Hindu in this case is different than being brown in Indian American and Muslim in say the novelist Ayad Akhtar's case. It's different if you're a Latino writer, right? There are all of these different iterations of it. And I think it's precisely these different iterations which interests me, right? Which is that race in America is a kind of, is, is a beast that keeps reconfiguring itself. And I think that if we can just like, pause, which is what this novel feels like, is let's just pause in this one week uh, it, it, it may not tell us about kind of black and white, but it may tell us about how some folks exist within that binary when they do not belong to either of them. Oh, fascinating. Say a bit about, in the context of what you've just been saying, about the title. Uh, how do you understand the title, the resonances of the title, members yeah. only? I mean, a, a couple of things, which is, to, to go back to Raj's existence at a university, right? Universities are, are clubs in a certain way, right? And there are certain employees of a university who are kind of allowed into the club. And there are certain employees who remain outside of the club as if it's a glass building and you're looking in, right? And so on one level, I think what I was interested in, uh, of course, in the case of the tennis club, which I'll talk about in a second, 
but also kind of how that notion of exclusion operates within the very real liberal space of the university, right? Where Paul and I, Paul, you and I know it intimately, right? We are thinking constantly about what inclusion means and how to rethink what the canon means and who to teach and how to teach them. And yet it's always those spaces that kind of, even as it is trying to do what it wants, is supposed to do, kind of reinforces some of these lines of separation. The second aspect of it, and the one that is hard for me to work through and I have no answer, which is what happens when you want membership into a social space that is not certain about its interest in you, right? What is, you know, on one hand, you can just say, well, you know, forget about it, right? I don't wanna deal with any of this, right? What does Raj love about the TC? He loves the sanctity of a tennis court and how beautiful a tennis court looks when there's nobody else there and he's hitting these tennis balls with his children, right? And so what does it mean for him to want to be in this place, for him to love being in this place and for there to be other people in this place who are uncertain of his place, right? And I think it's, the contradiction there that I'm much more interested in, the contradictory emotions that Raj has, which is how do you, what happens when you love a place that doesn't quite love you back, right? And I think if you were to kind of go further from the, 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 the screen here, of course, I'm, I'm also asking this question about the experience of, for example, in this case of being Asian in America, right? In the light of COVID, for example, right? What happens when you are part of this place that begins to really enact moments that says you're not here, you're not you're not welcome here you you will always be a foreigner in these in the, on these shores right and so that's I think this notion of membership and the conflicting emotions that go with it that is what interests me with this book and this this particular title. Well, thanks so much for that answer. We're coming to the end of our time together, so this will be my last question, and I hope it's not an unfair question. Have you read anything recently that you would recommend? I always ask uh, creative writers when I speak to them if they can have any books that they would recommend for our viewers. Yeah. Um, I will say that right now, I mean, there are, uh, th 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 there are a couple of books that I have kind of one that I'm in the midst of and one that I have just finished, right? Which I found interesting. Uh, for some reason, I picked up End Zone by Don DeLillo, who wrote this book in, I, I was tr trying to see when he wrote it. He wrote, it was published in 1972, right? And so it's a it's a 49 year old novel right now, which is kind of amazing to me. And I, I, I Paul, is, is that, was that his, do you know if that was his first novel? I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, I, I should have looked it up. I am kind of in the midst of that. Uh, I've enjoyed it kind of quite a bit. And I think it's a, a really, um, you know, he, he's good. And in, in some ways, you know, the, the, the fact that um, kind of one of the characters in Members Only uh, teaches in insecurity studies is my little nod to, you know, uh, in white noise. I think it's in white noise where um, the, the, it's a, he's a professor of Nazi studies, I think is the, is the phrase that he gives it. So uh, that is kind of one book 
that I've that I've been kind of digging my way through. Uh, the the second book is a work of nonfiction. Um, it's it's called The Loneliest Americans by. Uh, He's now, I think, a New York Times writer, J. Caspian Kang, which has had a, a bit of interesting controversy about kind of the ways in which he reads the Asian American experience. And um, I, 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 I kind of flew through that book as well. So both of those books are very different kinds of books, but uh, sometimes it's, it's good to read something very, very recent and then to just go way back in your bookshelf and find something that you haven't looked at for a long time. Well, thanks, Samir, for those recommendations, and especially thanks for taking the time to talk to us about your career, about uh, your new novel, Members Only. Uh, it's just been a total pleasure. Thanks, Paul. I really appreciate it. It was a great conversation. I've been speaking with writer Samir Pandya, Associate Professor of Asian American Studies at UC Santa Barbara and author of the novel, Members Only. On November 10th, 2021, Pandya will give a virtual reading as a guest of the University of Oregon's Creative Writing Program. Thanks so much for watching.